Hey everybody, I'm Cheyenne, back with Shy Pot Shuffle after like a two week hiatus. And I actually have had something working and working through the books of it since then. So I have decided to create and develop something that is going to be much more relevant to not only myself and my community, um, but also be relevant to making listeners and, you know, rich history of where music, you know, kind of started, um, especially making music and rock and roll and all sorts of stuff. It's going to be a super, super relevant and super in-depth, knowledgeable, awesome three-part sub-series that is going to be making music history. Not a cool fancy name or anything because I'm not creative, but uh, of the three-part series, I'll have Drew Jennings, who's actually my manager at the Rookery, on each week to talk about everything he knows about making music history, which is pretty much everything. I mean, we're probably going to start at like 1854 from what he told me. So buckle up and get ready to listen. All right, everybody. So I'm sitting here with Drew Jennings, who is actually my manager at the Rookery. I've been working there with him for about six months now. Um, so if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, uh, well, I am uh, born and raised here in Macon, Georgia. I uh, left for about 10 years, went to the University of Georgia and also uh, Valdosta State for a little while. Uh, was in Valdosta for work also. I've been uh, in and out of the restaurant business, but also have uh, been always around music as well. Uh, I was born uh, here kind of around the Macon music scene. Um, I've actually uh, lived in downtown Macon for the better part of my life as well. Um, grew up on High Street, which uh, directly across from the City Lanier Cottage, and uh, City Lanier is actually, you know, one of our early, early famous musicians as well as uh, he was a poet, uh, you know, musician. I know he played a number of instruments, including I think the violin and the uh, fife. Uh, if, if that was not quite <laughs> an instrument that we really quite know about today, but it was a uh, something that he played, I believe, while he was in his military service as well. Um, but not only that, there was a lot of, uh, with you know, with Mercer as uh, well, with uh, a lot of uh, just the youth of, of Macon somehow always kind of lived in that area as well. And um, from the time I can remember, I can always remember there being musicians that lived on our street. Um, when I left Macon, I really started getting more of an understanding of how much the place really meant to me because so many people were telling me things that I had not quite gotten the uh, depth of the, uh, in, into that I know today. And I was still more of a fan of a lot of the bands that uh, I'd heard on the radio growing up. And I knew that they had a connection to Macon, but I didn't really understand uh, what their influence really was until uh, I had people coming up and goes, oh, you're from Macon, uh, so-and-so's from there, you know, the Almond Brothers, uh, uh, Little Richard, um, you know, Otis Redding. And by uh, really getting those, uh, all these people coming up and telling me, I'm like, you know, I like these guys, but let me figure out more about them and everything. And the Almonds had really been one of my favorite bands since I was uh, real young. And uh, my dad uh, actually knew Alan and Phil Walden that owned Capricorn Records um, for a, uh, since he was uh, young. I believe they actually were all at Lanier at the same time together in the late 50s. And um, so... That's a little bit about me. That's kind of where I got to get my, you know, I get my history from. It wasn't something that I just, you know, had to go and read about or something like that. I kind of lived in it growing up and kind of took it for granted. And then when I got older, I was able to uh, kind of go in more in depth. And that kind of gives me the rich history that I went out and 
was able to acquire a lot of the information, but then again, I could relate it to people I knew and people I grew up with and people that were a part of my life for a real long time. Gotcha. So um, a genuine question that I've got for you is, so I know the Rookery's making music history as well. Mm-hmm. Did your like knowledge and your love for the making music history have anything to do with you wanting to work with H&H and the Rookery and the whole Moonhanger group? Um, yes, actually, I came to the Moonhanger group um, to originally be at H and H, and I was there for uh, three years before I um, we we moved down to the or I moved down to the Rookery and. Uh, the rich heritage that we have uh, as a, you know, we're a restaurant group is what people kind of know us for, but we're really, you know, a lot more than that with the Capitol Theater, which we also do a lot of shows that are at the auditorium. You know, our sister company uh, has got the Creek and uh, and and uh, the X, you know, so that all those have, you know, are very music oriented and it, those things would probably not be as successful if it wasn't for the rich history of, of Macon and everything. Uh, Two things that really brought me to the H&H was I grew up on High Street, which is the brick street that's directly behind H&H. And one of my really good friends growing up uh, was a guy named Pharaoh Owens, and he lived three uh, doors down from me, and he was four years older than me. And he was one of the guys that I could go out and, you know, we could ride our bikes off the street and stuff like that because he was a little bit older, and my mom would uh, always knew I was in good hands <laughs> if I was with him. So he had a best friend, a guy named Lamar, and me and Lamar uh, became really good friends as well. And actually the hospital, a lot of the parking decks and stuff like that were being built. And when uh, we would ride our bikes down to the bottom of the hill and then we'd push them back up the hill and uh, Mama Louise would always give us lemonade and and, uh, and biscuits. And she's <laughs> an unbelievably nice lady, but I always was wondering, like, this lady's always just, you know, <laughs> hollering at us and everything. and. Little did I know that Lamar's dad was Lamar Williams Sr. His name is Lamar Williams Jr. He's the lead singer of a band called the New Master Sounds at the moment. Uh, and he has been, uh, his dad uh, was the second bass player uh, for the Allman Brothers Band after Barry Oakley was killed in 1972. Yeah. But he was one of JMO's best friends, who's the Allman Brothers uh, uh, drummer, original drummer. There's a story about that we can get into a little <laughs> bit later on. And. Uh, he actually, his dad was in the army at the time that uh, the Almonds got together, and JMO actually had suggested to Dwayne that Lamar should be our, our bassist even before they bet, met Barry. So that's uh, you know that, that that's a part of it. Well, I have a love for that place. It was um, a place that was really close to my childhood, but then also uh, Mama Louise and uh, Mama Hill also. Mama Hill passed away a few years back, but uh, they were uh, very special ladies that wanted to take care of whoever was around. They didn't care who you, what, when, and where you were. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, so Drew, you know my limited knowledge of history and whatnot, (laughs) so if you could give me like a brief 60-second history of just Macon in general, like basics, what we need to know. Macon has been one of the oldest inhabited places in North America. Um, there is uh, reports that um, there was people living here. There's many as thirty or forty thousand people living here almost eight thousand years ago with the Creek Empire, um, and from that even all the way through present day, that we've had so many innovations and so many things that Macon has been important in, in the arts and in just in really everyday life. Uh, the separation of linseed oil was here in Macon for the first time, and that was the invention of Crisco. So, you know, Crisco cooking products that you see. And then, you know, uh, the same 
time, about that same time, uh, Tennessee Williams was living in Macon and wrote part of uh, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof and uh, here. And uh, some of the uh, characters that you find in that book are people that he met at a, the Pig and Whistle, which would have been mm -hmm. uh, where Sid's sandwich shop is, right on the other side of Mercer uh, campus right there at the moment. And from there, tracking us all the way through now, the people that have lived here have been the most influential people in the world, not just the uh, something that is done regionally or something that's done for the city. They've done things that have changed the world. And people take that for granted because a lot of times people take 475 and 16 and go around Macon and they don't get to dive into Macon and really find out what it's all about. Gotcha. All right, so that's a good place for us to start with Macon Music History, the origin story, where it started, which you told me was 1854, which I can't even do the math of how long ago that was. <laughs> so... Let's just dive into it. Tell me what you know from the very, very start. Well, if you, 1854 is one of the most, uh, I guess, significant times that you can actually track as far as a historical event that really happened. And this historical event is, a, you know, something that you would kind of don't think is a big thing. I mean, you know, it wasn't walking <laughs> on the moon, but the a guy named Alabama Vest, who was a uh, freed slave, uh, his, I believe his owner had actually left his freedom to him when he had passed away. And he, uh, the state, the, the fair was in Macon for a really long time. You know, we always think about the Perry Fair as being the big fair, but actually yeah. the big fair was in Macon for a very, very long time. And it was just. Was it like a national fair or just um, like a city fair? It was, a, fair? it was the Georgia State Fair, okay. but that was the fair that everybody came through from the whole state. Okay. Um, it's a little bit different. And they call it the, the Perry called it the Georgia National Fair because. Yeah. They were basically trying to convince people that this was a bigger fair than the Macon Fair okay. to pull people out of Macon, which has happened over the course of Macon's history a lot. Yeah, I didn't even know there was a Macon Fair ever. It, well, and, and then it was up until about, uh, I want to say about 10 years ago, was the final Macon Fair, and it was the longest running, uh, continuously running fair in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the nation, if I'm not mistaken, at that time. But uh, Alabama Vest, was uh, he actually learned how to um, whittle a little... Uh, flute uh, and and from uh, his grandfather who um, had I guess learned how to do it I think uh, from his, from actually his grandfather had been brought over from Africa uh, as a slave on a slave ship and he had uh, taught him how to, um, to to whittle this little uh, little flute and we know it today as the kazoo so the kazoo kind of made its actual debut in in Macon Georgia at the uh, at the fair is a little toy that you would sell and and all that and it uh, I guess it caught on from there I guess he didn't really become a millionaire or anything <laughs> like that from it there wasn't I don't think a trademark or anything like that like it is today but he uh, was credited with uh, with actually inventing the kazoo here here in Macon did you say it was a wood uh, it was made out of wood. Well, there wasn't a, there wasn't plastic yeah. then, so that was. Uh, <laughs> I told you, you know. I knew nothing about timeline and yeah, history. that's definitely that's so. That's not then. my forte. Plastic was the thing in the I think around the 30s and 40s it just really started hit was uh, coming together. So a few years later, but uh, now the um, from from there you had a, a a time period that the culture and arts. You know, there was some in Macon, but Macon was really a railroad town. But that's also what made Macon develop as a, a very cultural and a crossroads, really, of, uh, of, of people from all over the nation that were able to travel through here because Macon was such a major rail hub. Um, a lot of people don't realize that Atlanta, Georgia would have probably never been settled if it wouldn't have been uh, the halfway point between Chattanooga and Macon because 
the Macon is where the railhead was and they needed a place to refuel the trains before they went into the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains where they would burn twice as much fuel. So that's why Atlanta was actually settled as Marthasville. And and from there, it, it, it had a few name changes and all that. But what they call the zero mile marker is actually at um, the uh, train depot outside of the uh, Capitol building in, uh, in Atlanta. And that's actually from, I believe it's 138 miles from here to Atlanta and from Atlanta to the Chattanooga um, Chattanooga um, uh, rail, rail station. So it's kind of, a lot of people don't really know that, but that's what actually helped the influence in bringing a lot of different people here. And the thing about with culture and art, especially in the music industry is, there's always somebody trying to do it different for the first time. So if you have people from all over different places coming together to collaborate, that's when you get new sounds and, and fresh sounds. And then people go, oh, man, did you hear that guy over there? Did you hear this person over here? And that was how, you know, that was one thing that was very influential in making the, the making music scene a, uh, a national uh, music scene and then more than just a little local place with a couple clubs and all that kind of stuff. Gotcha. And so you told me with the railroad came Mr. Douglas and the Douglas Theater, and as usual, I know nothing other than it's a theater in Macon. So. <laughs> well, uh, Charles uh, Henry Douglas was a uh, man that was uh, is, is, was a very influential businessman, and I don't think that he knew at the time that he passed of the really the influence that he would have going forward, uh, and especially with his kids and wife carrying on the tradition of the theater um, after uh, after he had passed away as well. And Mr. Douglas was actually born. Uh, in in Macon, uh, his uh, father was a was a slave uh, as well. Uh, was a freed slave, and uh, he had um, was had a lot of odds and end jobs. And he actually built himself into a guy that could do a little bit of everything, and made a pretty significant living uh, in the early nineteen uh, 1900s here in Macon. And it uh, kind of went into where he has been considered the uh, Georgia's first African-American millionaire. And he opened um, the Douglas Theater in the early 1900s, and it was a place where it was a, where African-Americans could come and see, uh, you know, entertainment and, uh, you know, when movies were starting to get going and then uh, also um, comedy shows and, and live musical performances. And with, um, with, with that, he had a place that um, was kind of a refuge for the African-American community because at that time, you know, Macon has actually had a very, not a, not a very harsh history as far as, you know, race relations, especially in that time period. And, but it was common throughout the South to use intimidation as a way of uh, being able to control the uh, population and to have a place like the Douglas Theater that was owned by an African-American gentleman where they could come and actually relax, see a show, see an entertainment, actually made people uh, kind of say, hey, I could do that or and, and inspire people. But also, it was a place where they could actually meet as well to try to help with the progression of, of civil rights in the area. And so it was, it was a, he was an unbelievably important man to the, uh, to the population of Macon, Georgia, and really to the birth of Southern Rock, if you think about it, because by having all those, uh, you know, race relations that, have, uh, that were improved over time and having the African-American and white communities working together, you had the creation of, a, of the music scene that was, uh, second to none by the time the ni- by the, you got to the 1970s. So the Douglas Theater was kind of like a one for all for one type of thing. Like they had movies, music. It was like 
performing arts center. Place, I guess. Yeah, pretty much a little bit of everything. Also, he owned the uh, building right next door, and it was a hotel that was attached to it. So it also was right, and it, and this is all right next to um, you know where the Douglas Theater is today, down mm-hmm. on uh, on MLK, which would have been Fifth Street then. And really, the Third Street down to 7th Street was kind of the demarcation line of the African American Entertainment District and the White Entertainment District. But then the Cotton Avenue Exchange where you find H&H was called the African American Business District. That's also why that Capricorn Records was up at that area was because uh, at the time that it was founded it was pre-integration and it was a company that was called Wall Red Entertainment originally and it was Walden Redding Entertainment so it was a combination of, of, of an African American gentleman and a white gentleman that had a mm-hmm. business together which was you know uncommon for yeah. the time of the 1960s you know a lot of times I tell people it's like you know you look at the 1960s and you think of the really bad things about the you know in Birmingham with the with the dogs and the you know fire hoses and all that but you didn't see that around here as much and it wasn't that Macon was a perfect place that it was this that nothing happened that there was uh, there there was things that definitely happened, but it was also a place that there was some very strong um, and determined people on both sides that worked together to create a place that uh, that was better than most. Gotcha. So. Post-Douglas Theater came the Chitlin Circuit. Well the, well, the Douglas Theater was part of the Chitlin Circuit. Okay, and, uh, I have no idea what that yeah, is. <laughs> the Chitlin Circuit was a, it was, it's really kind of a derogatory remark that became a very proud, uh, proud, um, you know, uh, title. Uh, yeah. And the Chitlin Circuit was called the Chitlin Circuit because Chitlins are the intestines of pigs. And that was a common thing that was given to slaves or um, or sharecroppers uh, because the you know, have you heard the saying "living high on the hog"? Well, yeah. the intestines are not high on the hog. You know, <laughs> you have your uh, your ribs, your barbecue meat that you make from a, a pork pork butts are actually the shoulders of pigs. A lot of people don't know that as well. Yeah, I didn't know uh, that. <laughs> so, um, living high on the hog was you got the better meat, and then that was the 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 stuff that was just at the very end and by saying that was traditionally an African-American uh, um, a meal because it was kind of a waste product. And being known as the Chitlin Circuit was an African-American music circuit that traveled really from the, uh, you know, the Chicago, um, Memphis um, area all the way down through the Mississippi juke joints, had New Orleans and, and Louisiana, and then kind of up through uh, up through Macon, up through Eastern Seaboard, up to New York. And it would travel in this little, this, this, really this circuit. Uh, but the Chitlin circuit part of it was really the deep south part of it because it was a dangerous circuit to be on because you had to play in a lot of, uh, you know, back, back, uh, woods kind of clubs and, yeah. and you really didn't know what was going to go on and even in that time period there wasn't a lot of them that were owned by African Americans it was still um, so it was you know you didn't know if you're going to get taken advantage of or, or stuff like that as well and and by having actually in making a a lot of the clubs that were actually owned by African Americans and having that influence here, that became a refuge to where people came here all the time on the Chitlin Circuit. So you had some of your uh, most famous people that would come through here, and it really was in that's the time period from really the 1930s through the the 1960s, and uh, anywhere from Highland Wolf, BB King, uh, Ma Rainey, Etta James. Uh, Etta, there's a story that Etta James uh, said the first time she ever met uh, James. 
Brown was on um, Broadway in Macon, Georgia, and he would had a tattered napkin in his uh, pocket that had a uh, three words written on it, and those three words, Little Richard had, had, had written on that napkin and given it to him, and he said that was what his inspiration was to trying to become the artist that he uh, he was was when he first saw Little Richard uh, play, and so you know the Chitlin Circuit also had people from all over the country that came through. And by the collaborations and having these big shows at the Macon City Auditorium that had a unique rule. At, 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 and during the time of pre, uh, pre-integration, there was a rule that if the bands were majority African-American, that uh, uh, African-American folks had to sit downstairs and the white folks had to sit upstairs, which was unheard of yeah. anywhere in the country, more or less in the Deep South, the way that, uh, the, you know, around this area especially. And with Mr. Douglas and the and, and his kids and the people that he influenced and became afterwards, those people became influential in the political scene that were able to help us uh, or help the area, do, you know, actually have, you know, I won't say, I, I use the word equality uh, very <laughs> loosely because there wasn't any at the time, but it was, you know, like I said, there was things, that rules that were bent a little bit more here than it seemed like other places. So with the Chilton Circuit... Um, could you give these give us some big names that at least I might know, or like well, even the genres that they were doing? Was you it- you had um, a lot of blues artists, and you had a lot of um, um, jazz artists, and by these people playing together and traveling together is really what you had is the cultivation of rock and roll is directly out of the chilling circuit. Yeah, and. When you get a little bit more recent um, names that you would probably know is, like I said, Little Richard was very, very uh, deep on the Chitlin Circuit. James Brown was a member of the Chitlin Circuit. Uh, Johnny Jenkins and the Pine Toppers were on the Chitlin Circuit. And Johnny Jenkins, um, he is actually who gave Otis Redding his first start. So that's where Otis Redding first started singing. So in Macon, at one time, you could have Otis Redding, James Brown, and Little Richard all playing on different streets. Uh, clubs on different street corners and so it's like the you know it's one of the places that was the absolute you know mecca of of music Um, there's a show on uh, Showtime called uh, Tales from the Tour Bus and uh, Bootsy Collins talks about James Brown coming and uh, a guy named Texas Joe uh, and him were fighting over a girl and James won him and Tex, uh, Texas Joe had actually wrote the <laughs> first ever diss track about him and it's called You Can Have Her James and he's basically <laughs> talking straight to James Brown and says you can have her you know she ain't no good anyway you can have her <laughs> and then James Brown actually turns around and goes uh, and finds him at a place called Club 15, which is right off of Gray Highway. Mm-hmm. They don't talk about that it being in Macon there. They just talk about back in James's hometown, which James Brown was definitely from uh, the, uh, Augusta and then moved to Tacoa. But when he really became James Brown is when he lived in Macon. And uh, that was probably about the time he was around 16, 17 years old is when he first got down this way. And... Um, by uh, when he walked in, uh, he was already James Brown. He had been famous, kind of made some money. He had just fired the Famous Flames and Bootsy Collins, who would be uh, band Parliament and would also be with George Clinton. So Par- uh, George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic basically has a root that's you know they're not from here, uh, but they had their roots came directly from the making music scene. Yeah. Uh, Bootsy Collins. Uh, tells the story where James Brown walked into Club 15 and just started firing off a shotgun and uh, <laughs> tried to kill a Texas Joe and unsuccessfully did. Uh, 
the only casualty was there was a pig uh, that was in a pen out behind the club that caught a slug and died. Oh. But they had a barbecue the next day, apparently, and they all played uh, music out there. So it worked out. So it all worked out. But uh, that was the, there's, that's, that's a story about that's, you know, you can find on a TV show that's a, a current TV show right now yeah. that happened right here in Macon, you know. Um, but yeah, the, um, but going on from there, if, like I said, if you wouldn't have had uh, uh, an Otis Redding and then his, you know, success that he had, um, you would have not probably had uh, a, an Almond Brothers band or, or Marshall Tucker band or Leonard Skinner because uh, Phil and, uh, and, and Alan Walden working in collaboration with Otis Redding got them into the music scene. And then after Otis passed away, then they were able to go in a different direction. And then the creation of Southern Rock and Jam is created right then. So you yeah. got things that even the bands like Widespread Panic or, you know, uh, Fish, Humphrey McGee, you know, if it wasn't for collaboration of the Almond Brothers and the Grateful Dead, you don't have what is called jam. And that's an East Coast and a West Coast version of basically the same makeup of a band. Okay. And so it's, that it, it, it's, you know, it gets real deep, and you start saying, "Wow, Macon really does have a have a a very uh, ties to a, a national music scene much more than a regional music scene than yeah. what people think it is." Yeah, a lot of people don't know that. I mean, like I said, I've I am from forty five minutes from here. I grew up basically doing things in Macon, and then honestly, until I met you, like I had no idea like how much rich like Macon music history there was. And um, I actually talked about it briefly last week on my or on my last show, which was about rock. Um, that the African-American arts and culture and music culture is kind of what developed into rock and roll. You were talking about the Southern rock. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe we could kind of delve a little deeper into that. Yeah, And we definitely. can talk about some, like, years, because we've talked about a lot of different years, so let's just kind of, like, set a timeline where we're at, because this will be our last topic for the day anyways. Okay. Well, so. and, and this would be a, a perfect time to kind of go from the 19, really from 1950s and then the early part of the 1960s. Macon was... You could find better music in Macon, Georgia, than you could find in New York City. Honest to God's truth, uh, and and really, I mean, because the people that you would see in the Apollo Theater in the next few years were all people that were playing in Macon, and the with with James Brown, with Johnny Jenkins. Johnny Jenkins um, was unbelievably influential. He actually is one of the guys that really helped Dwayne Allman develop his sly guitar style. But he also uh, knew a kid that used to come to Macon because his aunt lived in Macon, and he was from Seattle, Washington. His name was Jimi Hendrix, and Jimmy used to actually run around the streets of Macon trying to find Johnny Jenkins and the Pine Toppers because he was absolutely enthralled with them. Wow. And then uh, he goes to the Army, gets out of the Army, and his first job back uh, in music is he plays for the Isley Brothers and Little Richard's backing band. So Jimi Hendrix has a direct tie to, to Macon, Georgia's music scene, and, and people never really put that together. So yeah. you have a few years back, Dwayne Allman and Jimi Hendrix were were ranked by all the uh, um, Rolling Stone magazine as the number one and number two guitarist of all time, which they're two different styles. So you really almost got to say number one A and B. Yeah. But Johnny Jenkins was the person that Jimi Hendrix actually, his whole act on stage was directly a copy of Johnny Jenkins. The first time he ever saw anybody drop down their knees and play a guitar behind their head was Johnny Jenkins. And mm-hmm. the fl- more flamboyant style of being on stage was Little Richard. So that's, you know, if Jimmy, one of the last things that people really remember uh, a big event about him before he passed away was when Johnny Jenkins and Jimmy actually got to see each other about a month before he had, uh, he, uh, he overdosed was um, he actually, they were in the same recording studio up in New York and a subsidiary of Atlantic. 
and he saw knew that he was a couple of rooms away and he pulled the guitar out of the amp he ran over there and said Johnny Jenkins he says are you Jimi Hendrix and he said yeah he said that's me he said I remember you running around on my coattails <laughs> and Johnny actually was given a guitar a Fender guitar um, by uh, Jimmy and Jimmy etched his name in the back of it and he said if there wouldn't be a Jimi Hendrix if there wouldn't have been a Johnny Jenkins that's awesome I had no idea the connection between them yeah so so you gotta think about that that was a, a guy that was just from Macon and lived in Macon until 2009 okay passed away in 2009 mm-hmm. and he is the direct influence on two of the the number one and number two guitarists of all time at Rolling Stone magazine. So, you know, wow. that's unbelievable <laughs> credibility right there, yeah. you know. Like I said, other than, honestly, I don't know a ton about, um, I guess, Southern Rock and Rock and Roll. Um, so, until I actually started working at the Rookery, I didn't even hear the name Johnny Jenkins. There you go. So. Everybody thinks it's a hamburger, but it's a lot more I than mean, just it a hamburger. A, I knew it was a musician. <laughs> I just never heard of him. No, it's uh, you know, and 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 Johnny, and also is who hired Otis Redding uh, as his first job as a singer, and so by Otis then becoming the unbelievable international star that he ended up being, which funny thing is Otis Redding made his debut at the Monterey Pop Festival, where Jimi Hendrix also made his debut. So they were on the, so same they track. were on the, on the, yeah, they were on the stage at the, almost the same time, and this is both guys that were like, or Johnny Jenkins disciples, you know. Wow. And so we go, you know, we go forward from there. And Otis, uh, unfortunately, you know, has the plane crash and, and, and dies. And Phil and Al Walden didn't really know which direction they were going to go in. And Phil um, decided to partner with a guy named Frank Fender, and they were both Capricorns. And that's how the Capricorn Records got their name. And they, uh, Phil had heard uh, Mr. Rick Hall from Muscle Shoals uh, Music and recording studio had sent over a track of Wilson Pickett playing the song Hey Jude, which was a Beatles song that was on the charts currently and it only been out for about six or eight weeks and they said they covered it and uh, Phil said, man, he said, that's a great track. That's going to be a hit, but that isn't your normal session guitar player. Who's that kid, the cat playing in the background? And Mr. Hall uh, said, that's a, that's a guy named uh, Sky Dog Almond. And they said they call Wilson calls him Sky Dog. He said because notes like that can only be that high in the sky. <laughs> and he said uh, his name's Dwayne. And he said I'm gonna send a couple guys over to uh, to to meet him. And uh, Twigs Linden, who had been um, uh, Little Richard and Otis Redding's um, uh, tour managers at different times, and Jamo actually were sent over to Muscle Shoals a recording studio in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. And they met Dwayne Allman and Jamo. Uh, the last thing J-Mo ever said was I went to Muscle Shoals or excuse me last thing he said on stage when the Allman Brothers played their last show was I went to uh, meet a guy named Dwayne Allman in 1968 in Muscle Shoals Alabama and I said he said I was going I've been to a recording studio many times he said at that point I wanted to be the best jazz musician or jazz drummer in the world he says but then I met Dwayne Allman and realized I needed to I needed to be with this guy and he said it was uh, from that point on it changed his life and then from there you have another edition of making music that uh, takes a little bit different turn but uh, people are not it's really what it, they are they know the making music scene is from this period of time that is our, our really our next period of time but then but then they uh, once they understand that uh, you know the connection between the two periods is really why the second uh, stage of making music was able to uh, to really explode the way it the way it did that's right um, so I guess, I mean, that's a really great stopping point at the, like, 
yes, ending of the development of rock and roll. Um, I know next week we're going to be talking about our next episode. We're going to be talking about like the golden age with Little Richard and um, Capricorn Records and mm-hmm. what happened after the fall of Capricorn Records. Yep. Um, so just last question to top it all off. Mm-hmm. So we talked about the ages from like 1854 to about 1960-ish. So who would you say is your favorite musicians from those times? Ooh, that's really hard. That's really hard. <laughs> I know. It's like it was the beginning. It was the big rock and roll time. But Otis Redding to me is there is not a finer R&B <laughs> singer in the world. And I don't think there ever will be. Um, with about four words, he can pull your heart out of your chest. Yeah. And there's not anybody, there's a lot of performers. I call people nowadays more performing artists than they are true singers. But Otis Redding is absolutely my favorite of that time period. And to be, and have to see his legacy continue in making, it makes it that much more special too. Gotcha. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for all of that knowledge and history. Um, and we'll have you back on in about two weeks for the second part of the series. Cool. Thank you so much. <laughs> so thanks to Drew for being on the show with me. And I'm looking forward to getting the other two done. So if you're listening and you're from Macon, I have got some concerts for you. So November 22nd, Travis Tritt is going to be playing in the Macon City Auditorium. That's going to be country music. Um, the Avid Brothers are going to be playing April 2nd at the Macon Centerplex. And they are more of like a kind of indie alternative type. Uh, the Newsboys are going to be November 14th at the Macon City Auditorium. Uh, Corey Smith is going to be playing November 8th at the Hardgrave Capital Theater, which is owned by the Moonhanger Group, um, who also owns The Rookery and H&H, etc., etc. And those are pretty much some important ones going on. Um, you know, if you're listening and you want to find some more, you just got to Google Concerts in Macon, Georgia, and you'll find the exact list that I'm reading from. So thanks for listening, and next week I'll be back by myself to talk about another genre. Thanks.